behalf of the entire awards committee, uh, Joe Beal, you are completely deserving of this. If I had a trophy, I would give it to you right now. For those of you who don't know me, as Angela said, I am Andrea Fleck-Nisbet. I am the Chief Executive Officer at the Book Publishers Association. 20 some odd years ago, I started my career working in publishing, where I like to say I received a liberal arts education in publishing. Um, I, we were talking earlier about mentorship, how important that is, and how having interns is an opportunity to mentor and train young people, and I really felt so fortunate to spend 15 years at Workman, where I started as an assistant in the special sales department, and was able to move up and do so many different roles, and that's how I really learned about what publishing is, what good publishing is. And so I just wanted to mention that I agree that having interns is such an important part of the work that we do. I worked also as Peter Workman's assistant. Um, he was the founder and publisher of Workman Publishing, and he was, among other things, a sportsman, a poker player, a philanthropist, and he once likened the odds of success in publishing to baseball. Peter said, like a baseball player, great success for a publisher is getting it right three out of 10 times. As independent publishers, we value excellence, innovation, and a modicum of subversiveness in our work, right? We believe that books have the power to shape and change lives. Is the book the best that it can be? Are you proud of the book when the first copy comes in from the printer? Do you feel like you can't wait to send that book to friends, families, buyers, and reviewers? Does the book offer good value? Does it have a legitimate reason to exist? Does it give you pleasure? And does it push the idea of what a book can be? Today, I'm grateful for the opportunity to honor an independent publisher whose work over the past three decades not only models what good publishing is, but pushes the idea of what publishing can be by incorporating those less quantifiable measures into each book project that microcosm publishing produces. In the early 90s, with no prior publishing experience, industry connections, or startup funding, Joe Beale set out, in their words, to start the punk rock version of publishing, which I absolutely love. With a mission to equip readers to make positive changes in their lives and in the world around them, and the vision to remove barriers to success for marginalized people in our industry, Microcosm initially operated their business out of milk crates and closets, sold books from backpacks, at bicycle festivals, and on street corners, and were informed repeatedly by distributors that there was no market for their type of books. I just want to say that again because when we talk about innovation and forward thinking, I'm not going to repeat the whole paragraph, but a mission to equip readers to make positive changes in their lives and in the world around them, and the vision to remove barriers to success for marginalized people in our industry. How forward-thinking is that? That's what we're all trying to accomplish now, and Joe was doing that 30 years ago. After partnering with several distributors who finally saw the value of Microcosm's publishing proposition, but who couldn't quite grow their business as effectively as Joe knew it could be done, Microcosm set a new mandate in 2018 to stop supplying to Amazon, put little effort into major accounts and focus on building relationships with independent retailers. 
basically defying all the rules that trade publishing tells us we must adhere to. In 2019, the company grew 156% and now adds 150 plus new stores each month to its customer base. So again, let's pause there and recognize that it is 3.4 new retail outlets every single day. In 2022, Microcosm was named one of the fastest growing independent publishers in the country. Today, Microcosm operates their own distribution business, three warehouses, and a successful bookstore in Portland, Oregon. They plan to release 42 new titles and ship 550,000 books out of their warehouses in 2024. As part of managing their own business, Joe and Ellie have also developed an operations platform, which I am very excited about, called WorkingLit, that manages all their title data, sales, inventory, invoicing, accounting, shipping, website functionality, data exports, taxes, performance analytics, and product management. With the goal of helping other independent publishers succeed in the market and control their own destiny, working lit will soon be available to other small publishing businesses so they can manage their own operations in a cost-effective way. Because, in the true spirit of punk, Joe believes that every publisher with quality content, a strong value proposition, and the desire to use books for the greater good of readers can succeed independently with the right tools to make books available wherever and whenever book buyers want to discover and purchase them. Incredibly, I did not have the pleasure of meeting Joe until this past fall when, at the insistence of Angela Engel, whom I swear is the great matchmaker of independent publisher, publishing, if you want to know someone, let Angela hook you up. Um, so she insisted we meet up for lunch at PMVA Neither Joe nor I were actually even going to go to PNBA that year. We weren't planning on attending. I live in upstate New York. Joe's in Portland. I, Angela said, you, ha you have to go. You have to meet Joe, please. So I said, all right, I'll get on a plane. Flew all the way across the country. Showed up at the Holiday Inn in Portland. Um, and you know, we sat around, we had some tacos, and we talked about all sorts of things in publishing. Um, and. I have a confession to make, which is that I have been hearing about Joe for years. This fabled guru publisher that famously eschewed working with Amazon and yet managed to grow their publishing business threefold. I was a little intimidated, as anyone would be, and I was there waiting in the Portland Holiday Inn Library, um, which was sadly lacking in slap machines and blackjack tables, so there was nothing to entertain me. Now, I come from New York Publishing. Um, or the Literary Industrial Complex, as Joe has named it. <laughs> and I suppose I was anticipating someone who was one part brilliant, one part precious, two parts publishing precocious, and likely sporting black plastic glasses. So for you publishing folks who have been in the industry for a while, you know exactly what I mean. What I was not anticipating was the sweatshirt and sneaker sporting, kind, inquisitive, and engaging human whom I have had the pleasure of befriending over the past several months. However, I do think I was spot on in the brilliance assessment. So over tacos, we discussed everything from specialty sales, title management, distribution, printing philosophies, marketing accessibility. What excites me most about Joe's approach to publishing is that it can be done successfully and profitably with the right tools, the right content, and the right motives without following the traditional path of corporate publishing or adhering to trade supply chain rule. 
Having spent 15 years at Workman under the tutelage of Peter, I know firsthand that this is true, that it can happen. And as I've come to know Joe over the past several months, I am repeatedly struck by how many of the publishing principles that I learned at Workman microcosm actually follows, and perhaps none so much as this. Differentiate yourself. Know what you do as a publisher that no other publisher does, and do it better than anyone could. Try to publish books that are singular. Find a unique way to cover a subject. Give the book to the format it needs, even if it's never been done before. Be open to new ideas and follow them wherever they lead. And finally, be accessible, not elitist. Not snobbish, be open. Publish books that are useful, practical, give good value, and respect the reader's intelligence and wallet. That was very touching, I really not everyone actually knows the story of Microcosm, so would you start by telling us a little bit about the company and how it came to be? Publishing was never about books. It was about ideas, it was about saving lives. So I, like, when I started as a teenager, I really thought about like, how can I take information and package it to help people? And that was really the whole thing, you know? And it was never, it became more than that later, because then I was like, okay, books are actually like a really efficient way to package information. And then so, you know, I was a, you know, an at-risk teenage runaway, and I went and got adopted at the punk club and took those sort of ideas and, you know, the things that I saw from the older kids, and, you know, I made it where I was like, oh, okay, we can do the same thing that they're doing here. For books and I kind of babbled that to one of the older kids one day and he was like oh yeah that's cool and then 10 years later we ran into each other again and he was like you actually did it you know I brought my, the books that I published initially to bookstores and they kind of turned me away politely sometimes impolitely and you know and then I was like okay well where do I go that they'll take me and I stumbled upon the same thing that you know Peter Workman had which is the what we now call like special sales or specialty markets and you know stores that primarily don't sell books and they were much more receptive they sell a lot more books and you know so but that was like maybe a roundabout way maybe the, the same way that Peter came to it but that was how I came to it that thing it was really about a reason for me to get out of bed every day it wasn't about a business or making money or anything like that but I think that's why it resonates is because what I was doing was meaningful to other people in the same way that it was meaningful to me as a young person. You know, and I like to still think that I'm a young person, you know, 30 <laughs> years later. Because it's like, that's still the way that I approach it, you know. And now we just have, you know, a staff of 30 some and, you know, we sold millions of books and that. But again, it's like, you put that, that part follows value proposition and having something that you've made that's you talked a lot about how, you know, you didn't have the resources, so you just got up and you did it, and a lot has changed in the industry in the past 30 years, you know, the way that books are merchandised, the way that they're sold in, the many, many layers which have evolved over time to getting books into retail. Do you believe that a small startup indie publisher today has the ability to do the same thing that you did back yeah. then? 
you know, it's funny, this is sort of the number one question that's posed to me as like a, and you know, sometimes it's a gotcha question even, you know, that is if our story is supposed to always be prescriptive for other people. But I do, I do believe that. I mean, the biggest thing we learned in the Simon Schuster and the Random House DOJ trial is that the market share growth for both of those companies was in distributing independent publishers. Independent publishers, meaning these multi-billion dollar conglomerates cannot figure out how to grow their market share without us. You know, so we're the commodity, you know? It's not the matter of, you know, it's not like AI is not the risk, it's, you know, it's about making something that's meaningful to people. It's about like having a clear, well-developed book. That's what, you know, that's why you could still do it. You just have to have a very defined niche and have that be really clear to the people that would care about that. We've talked several times about Peter. We talked a little bit, so there were a lot of Peterisms that we talked about, but one of them, <laughs> is this idea of publishing being a three-legged stool. And I was wondering if you could describe what that is and why it's important to have all three legs balanced and the same height. So, you know, it's funny that you would probably be more qualified to describe this because I'm taking it now from second and third generation sources. But- You do mention it in your book, though. But, guilty. <laughs> and so, um, you know, this is essentially the idea of aligning the value chain, but Peter has a much more elegant way of putting it, where, you know, it's, it's showing that a three-legged stool tips over if any of the legs is missing or broken, is the general premise. And your three legs are, like, the book's development, like the price, the trim size, the packaging, the cover design, you know, the, the fundamental components of discoverability, which, you know, nowadays would probably, like, include metadata, the copy, the blurbs, and then you have the publisher-author relationship, you know, the what is like the fundamental backbone of why you're working together towards a common goal. And then you have everybody else that touches the book, the retailers, the, you know, the wholesalers, any kind of special partnerships. And so if all of these people, if anybody, you know, the, the stool tips over if any of these things is sort of misdeveloped. You know, so you really need to think about that in terms of like aligning the value proposition. You know, so you want everybody in the reader, you know, like maybe the most important party of all. You know, it's like you make the book for the reader, and so that needs to be the fundamental focus. And when all those things are aligned, those are the books that succeed, and it feels like life is uneasy mode, or at least publishing it. When you were being interviewed by Calvin Reed, he was like, where have you been? And so I feel like Microcosm was kind of operating under the radar, quietly building its business. And then in 2018, when you decided not to supply to Amazon directly anymore, um, all of a sudden you're getting a lot of press for that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about just because it's such a large specter that looms over our industry. This was not a moral or ethical decision this was on its, you know, I mean, on some level, it's like anybody that's been in an unhealthy relationship, like, can understand a publisher's relationship to Amazon. And if you haven't, then, like, good for you. But, you know, so to us, we were just looking at, like, what this costs and how much time this takes up of every day. 
you know, I've had so many conversations in the last five, six years where people come up to me and they're like, you don't know how lucky you are. <laughs> I have conversations about Amazon every single day of my life. Oh, right, but I'm not lucky. Like we made a concerted decision that was a gamble and worked out very well. Like we have quintupled our size through that decision. And it wasn't by not focusing on Amazon, it was by focusing on 12,000 independent retailers who are, you know, like who we all got into publishing for. We didn't get into publishing because we were worried about billionaires making a living. We got into publishing because we were like, oh, we want people to appreciate the books that we make. You know, one of our key market salespeople, her first day on the job, she was like, oh, we can do all this better ourselves. Well, that's sort of a bold thing to say. <laughs> and then, you know, by like six months in, I was tired of having this conversation with her. And so then, and then uh, my business partner like pointed out to me that she was like, you know, you have more stress and difficult conversations about those relationships than any other, we could just walk away from all that. And that was more how it worked. You know, it wasn't that we were trying to make a moral stance against Amazon. We started before Amazon was such a dominant force in the industry. So because of that, we had a strong direct-to-consumer website, you know, from 1996. So we could have our, you know, all of our people were ordering our books on our website, not from that other company. And so even through thick and thin, 20 some years later, Amazon was 1% of our sales. And so it wasn't a big loss. And you know, we had a we had a rough patch in 2017 where they were like 9% of our sales. And I feel like that is still kind of embarrassing, but we recovered. Think about it from a capacity standpoint. Like the things that you focus on and give attention to will consume your life, you know? So if you focus on where you want to go instead of what you're afraid of, then that's where you'll arrive and that's where your concerted, you know, parts of your brain will go. You've built this very rapidly growing publishing company, particularly in the last couple of years. And so when we talk about, you know, selling books off the back of your bicycle and you know going in and hand selling a book to suddenly how many people do you know have in the organization? I know we talked about it yesterday. How many people Ellie? Thirty something. Thirty something. <laughs> she's just, she's just taking the video. She doesn't want me to ask questions. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of them because it's like it, you know we're like we're hiring two more positions right now, you know. So thirty plus people, three warehouses, an online store, a publishing company, you're a distributor. How have, what have, what's been the challenge in, in growing from a like scrappy, I'll do it myself and get it done type of business to now managing a company where you're shipping 550,000 books this year? Well, it takes more than myself. I mean, that's <laughs> the big one. To me, I think of the things that are the same when I should be thinking of the things that are different because that's kind of forever. The question is like, our mission is the same. It's like unchanged in that time. And you know, maybe that was like the dumb luck of how I stumbled into things where, because I was trying to create the kind of resources that I knew I would appreciate that resonated with other people versus trying to make something that seemed like it would be profitable or successful or whatever. And you know, and that brought in people that that spoke to to become our staff, you know, and that's an important detail 
as well. And so, you know, and the difference now is at this point, you know, we get people, not necessarily because of that history, we get people that, you know, they want to work in publishing, they like our mission, they think it's cool, but they're not so tied into the story nature of our organization. So for me, and I maybe have a reputation as being somewhat stingy within our organization, I still think about like whenever I'm solving a problem, my first question to myself is how would I solve this problem if I had no funding? Because that is fundamentally how you solve every problem. And by not immediately throwing money at something, you will find a more elegant solution. You know, And bringing our staff along with that, that's one of the more difficult things because you know a lot of times if somebody especially if somebody comes from a bigger company they're bringing in ways that they're having trouble seeing like my way of critical thinking or problem solving or what you know would now today be called innovation and do you so the mission as you said remains the same do you do you find that the culture has shifted at all as you've grown? Um, it's definitely more difficult. We, when we were, even when we were about 11 people, that was kind of the last point you could sit down and have a conversation and have everybody be comfortable talking in a room. And then now, once you get bigger than that, you can't really do, you can do that departmentally, but you can't do that organizationally, you know? And just because a lot of people are, well, they are not necessarily inclined to have a conversation with 37 of their peers. You know, maybe maybe it feels like they're being judged by their ideas. And so um, that has been difficult to, because really the most important thing that I've focused on nurturing is to make people comfortable expressing their ideas. And most of our best ideas come from customer service, they come from our warehouse employees, they come from people that work in marketing. They come, they're not necessarily white collar jobs. They're people that like, they see how many thousands of copies of some books come in the door and how many copies of some books go out the door. And then they're doing a lot of work where they think while they do their work and then this, generates a lot of good ideas. So you want those people to know, I want to know your best ideas. And you want them to share those best ideas with you because then when everybody is giving you their best ideas, it makes the organization better, you know? And then just maintaining a culture where people are working together as a team, that's been, that's like forever the work in progress. Well, the other thing I don't know if a lot of people know about microcosm is that it's a boy-owned. Right, so when you're talking about people being invested, they're quite literally very invested in the organization. Right, yeah, we had, we instituted a bonus profit sharing that's company-wide. So if you work for us, we divide all the profit by all the employees. And that's like, I feel like basic. They created that money, they get that money. And similarly, we created an ESOP program, which is, means the employees best ownership of the company that's kind of the same thing where, to me, the point was never to accumulate wealth. The point was to create something that would outlive myself, you know? And that, as it became clear that that was possible, I did not have that ambition 30 
developed it as it became clear that things were going beyond my wildest dreams as well. What are some of the opportunities that you see in the industry today, particularly for independent public? Well, blue ocean theory, this idea that you would work in a arena where you don't have competition. And, and, and I don't know, this came so naturally and instinctively to me as a young person. And I just watched every publisher squabble over the half inch of shelf space for their book in each bookstore with every other publisher on earth as there came to be more books, more publishers, more competition year over year. And I, and I always thought like, why don't we just go over here? Like, there's plenty of places that would sell the books. And one of my mentors, completely independent of this thought, came to me one day and was like, you know, my greatest satisfaction in life is going into a store that has zero books in it and getting them to sell books. And I was like, yeah, that, yeah. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's like, that's exactly the opportunity space. And I mean, this, you know, it's not like we added 12,000 accounts by fighting over bookstore inches. We did it by converting new stores into selling books, you know? And we aren't the only ones that have a monopoly on that idea, you know? Like all of you can do that just as well. One publishing in general moves at a glacial pace and that there um, is some fear of change within our industry, maybe more than some, maybe quite a bit. Um, but there's been a lot of discussion, particularly among corporate publishers recently about um, commitment to accessibility in particular in our industry. We all recognize that that's critical. It's critical to all of our success. I was curious how you see that evolving and if you think that chain, that push to become a more accessible industry comes from the large publishers who have the most power and can wield that change, so from the inside out, or whether it comes from the outside in. My rhetorical question would be, when has change ever not come from the bottom about anything? You know, it always stems from people being sort of irascible and, you know, upset, pushed out, you know, and so then, you know, you say like, oh, I want a place at the table, and if you're not gonna give me a place at the table, I will create a place at the table or build my own table, you know, and I think that's really the only way to go about any kind of change, because it's not like people give up power easily or freely, it's that, you know, you have to look at a radical re-envisioning of how you wanna see the industry, not how the industry is going to let you in as a market opportunity or, you know, I mean, I see so many divisions or imprints of major houses that are given to a young person based on their background as like a quick cash grab opportunity and almost never do those imprints survive two years, you know, because it's not, it's not about a commitment to that in the long term, it's, it's the test market, you know. Whereas when you make a company that is your company, 
you are committed to that in a much broader, wider way, and you're just going to see it through a lot better. Actually, most folks here today, I think, are from long-established independent publishers um, or even institutional publishers. And I wanted to ask you, what advice would you give to someone in this room for making positive change in an organization that might be suffering from inertia? I love this question. It's one of my favorites, so thank you. I used to do consulting, and I stopped because usually every time I could see what the problem was within five minutes, and I'd say, oh, just change this, and you're all set. And then they would say, but we've always done it that way. And you're like, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> You've always done it that way. And you know, and like maybe this is what makes me innovative, but you know, I really look at every single problem, and I, you know, and I was raised this way to some degree, to say, you're here, you want to go here, you don't complete a series of memorized tasks that sent you in a roundabout fashion to arrive there. You you calculate the shortest path and you plot your course, and then you reassess that with routine regularity. And you say, oh, yeah, right. We It doesn't make sense to do this anymore because we're not even going there. I've just built this into my workflow. And, you know, I, I mean, this is kind of what led us away from Amazon. This is what grew us to focus on smaller Retailers. This is, you know, we had um, same major account salesperson. She uh, was interviewed in Publishers Weekly. She's a little bit uh, trepidatious, so this was kind of a, a moment of nerve-wrackingness for her. Um, about that same time, in that initial announcement that we would stop supplying Amazon, and she said, you know, three good independent retailers are always going to be bigger than one Amazon because. It's a relationship. You can work with them and you can say, here are some books that would work in your store. Maybe you could try these. Oh no, what about these? And it's an ongoing conversation that isn't reset every year when it doesn't meet a profitability standard. And you know, at that time I was kind of like, wow, that's kind of bold. Three accounts to be like the world's second largest retailer. But then she was right. I mean, and we now, we have those accounts and they're way less of a pain in the ass to deal with. They're, it's a relationship, so when you say, hey, this is what we need from you, it's not a big deal. Then we can, you know, if it's a give and take, it's not just a take. And, you know, and I think no matter like what department or aspect of operations a person works in, there are those shortcuts, you know? And I think that really, it, it, it makes the day much less painful. Of course, I'm intrigued by the whole idea um, of many relationships with independent publishers, or, you know, retailers. And um, while we work on that, we have not gotten rid of Amazon. But I'm curious to know in the relationship building with those um, smaller retailers, independent retailers, obviously they're not just regional for you. They're, you know, maybe you started there. Um, but did you, you mentioned now that some of them, and many of them, you have accounts with. So are they a standard? I know, tell me to stop if I'm reaching any rules. Um, but I mean, I, I 
in my experience of going to those sort of long ago smaller retailers, they would they would work on a consignment. They weren't ready to set up like a, a an ongoing relationship. And publishers aren't in love with consignment. I don't mind it in some cases, but did you have to start with that, or did, did you just do you have regular you know Amazon like uh, accounts with your you know what I mean um, with all these different independent retailers? I would like to point out. Most importantly, that Amazon functionally works on consignment. <laughs> and in the 90s, we had, I don't know, a dozen consignment accounts. Um, and then once in a while, we would find another one where they would say, that's the only way we buy books. And, but today, I don't, I mean, we don't have any, I mean, it's, it's more a matter of like, if you make something that's cool enough, they're not gonna turn it away on the grounds that they have to pay for it, you know? And even when there's stores sometimes that say they need that, when you come back and you're like, no, I'm sorry, well, you know, get back in touch if you change your mind, they usually are like, oh, okay, we'll just make an order then. It's that antitrust device, hard to say. But, I mean, I guess it's like life is a negotiation if you tell people what you need. The, what you've done with Amazon is, to me, fantastic. It's, it's, I think every publisher is troubled by the relationship with Amazon, and one way to get out of a troubling relationship is to cut it off. The question, in my mind though, you've become, that allows you to become more successful in your distribution efforts because you can concentrate on building this fantastic retail um, set of relationships You've grown significantly. You have more and more successful books than you had pre-Amazon. Um, now, as you sit here in 2024, are you leaving money on the table? <laughs> the books that are the best selling now had come out prior to that decision. So the sales of those books increased under this rubric. So in short, no, we are not leaving money on the table. We've quintupled our size. The same, you know, and this is the harder part I think to understand, is it's not the new books that we're publishing, it's the old books that we published before. Exactly. Yes, also known as backlist, but we like to call them bestsellers. <laughs> Could you walk us, give us a concise guide to your acquisitions process? Because I'm, I'm wondering if you acquire differently than maybe other publishers might. Oh, thank you. That is up there with the how do you get people? <laughs> yeah. um, this is, or I should say once was my proudest moment. We asked every author to submit a five second pitch, one sentence that tells us what their book is, why it's unique, why people care, to give us three comps that we've published in the last five years to show that they've spent five minutes on our website, and that's it, you know? And then we'll take their, you know, we ask for like a first paragraph of each chapter from there to make sure like they can actually write, but it's that one sentence that really tells you if they can write or not. And that's like the part where you're like, if you're a writer, write your best sentence and just put it right here. <laughs> and I did have somebody yesterday tell me that they would not be submitting to us because what we asked for is functionally impossible. <laughs> but people do it every day. 
So then you're like, is it impossible? But yeah, and that's the thing where then this gets us out of the workflow of having to read manuscripts and having to process, you know, it, it just saves a tremendous amount of work at the same time. But because then, you know, then you can also kind of see if the other thing that happens is I'm sure everybody in acquisitions is aware is that many authors will try to functionally misrepresent what their work is to make it seem like it's a good fit for you. And so this way, you can, if they try to use like thinly veiled language or whatnot, you can kind of read between the lines and sort it up that way. And please feel free to use that idea, make it your own, like it's just such a great time saver to, so you aren't reading every junkie flush pile manuscript. Joe and Ellie do a podcast. I found them on LinkedIn. It's incredible. And it's a great, I've been in this business for 30 years and I'm learning so much from you guys. So thank you for that. First question, and you can tell me if it's uh, too much information for you to share. How, how is your return situation? And is a part of your sales pitch to these indie booksellers that you are not selling to Amazon? And is that like open a bunch of doors for you? I didn't know I could love so many questions. <laughs> Thank you. We, when we were sold by PGW, we hovered around 20, 25% returns. Starting in 2018, we were hugging around 1% returns. And we were like, oh, well, we're clearly under-servicing the market. You know, it's like usually the logic there is like what that means. It's like we're not shipping enough because not enough is coming back, like our sell-through is too good. And so six years in, you know, we're gradually increasing, ramping up in wholesalers in all kinds of places. And our 2023 year net was 1.4% returns. So, I mean, which like, if you wanna be a green company, it's not shipping books to have them shipped back to you. And, and, and uh, I mean, I've had similar conversations with a number of the publishers here that really like this is the best solution of owning and operating your own distribution is you aren't scattershot over servicing. You're putting the books in the right place, in the right quantities. And you know, you can also, and if somebody's ordering too much, you can undership to service place that you know will sell through. And you, so you just have greater maneuverability with that. But yes, we do um, tell the stores, um, though it is funny because, you know, as you might all know, entrepreneurs are a wiggly bunch where, you know, often what, so what happens is we don't do anything with Amazon. However, third party sellers can put our books on Amazon free and clear. So what happens is the books are usually sold for over the cover price on Amazon, which is like the dream come true. Amazon is the most expensive place to buy our books. It's just like, it's brilliant, you know? And so, um, but what will happen is periodically retail will get in touch and be like, you know, it says that you don't sell these to Amazon, but um, I did find two of these books on Amazon and one of them did have a buy button, you know? so. It's like they'll try to split hairs in that way, but it you know it really comes down to like what are your goals? What's the best 
shortest path to getting there. Uh, just to build on what Victoria asked you, Joe, when you have a 1.4, was that the number you just said, 1.4% great return rate? I mean, amazing. Um, do you also find that you've figured out who the re who the end consumer is, like with those retailers? Like you essentially are also speaking to the people who go into the stores and are buying the book. I mean, is that part of the and in that, do you provide any sort of signage or other things to retailers in order to help us out? Wow, this is another question I absolutely adore. We had this conversation with every distributor we've ever had, where we said, sell our books as a unit, have the stores shelf them as a unit. This will dramatically, and you know, everybody says this, this is like not wizardry, this is like a pipe dream. And the thing that happened when we brought in our own sales force is they actually did that and then a number of stores would come back and you know there was an ABA forum where two of the stores were like the microcosm section in our store is the highest grossing section in our store and we were like well that's I mean right that's everything you need to know right there I guess because <laughs> yes what the result of that is that the readers know that store has our stuff when we have a new thing, it's going to be there. They know to go there. They know to go there to see what we have new, whether they're aware of it yet or not. And so it's it's just a greater beginning to end marketing strategy. Most of our books are our our median list is like fourteen ninety five, so we're on the lower end. But. When we had a higher end book, what we would run into a lot is people would just worry that Amazon would poach the sale. And so now we, we could mitigate that concern and then we could mitigate the you know the concern of the book isn't new anymore because again, we're structuring all of our lists to be evergreen, meaning our best selling books were published anywhere from five to 20 years ago. And they're selling better now than they were Two-part question, and thank you, John. So inspired by everything that you do, and um, really proud of all the work that you're doing. My first question is: Can you walk me through the decision-making process to do your own distribution? How that process went for you, and any advice you have for other publishers who are considering making that move? Um, my second question is: What are some of your best methods or practices for pitching to retailers? And I'm just curious to know. What are some of the stories that have never carried books that now carry books? And like, what's, what, what, are, what type of stores are they? There's a candle store in Salem, Massachusetts that had never sold books, and they now order weekly from us. And it's one of those things where I never would have thought to reach out to them. You know, like, that is, like, their vision for their store exceeds my vision for their store. You know? <laughs> Which, like, I love, obviously, but that blew my mind when, when things like that started happening. So the other thing, I guess, that is an important detail here. So even when we were distributed, our distributor was never in the majority of our sales. They were always a minority of our sales. We built a business-to-business -business website where a store could log on at midnight, create an account, put in all their information, it sets up their account, them and then they can place an order get their discounted pricing and then that flows to our warehouse in the working 
the software that we made, and then the warehouse fulfills the order, it sends them a bill, you know, it all is sorted out. And so we, that's sort of how we knew how big the industry was, because we could service all these accounts that were invisible, that you know, don't work with typical type you know, publishers. And so that we had 20 years of that, and after a while, you just see over and over, people are focused on the 10 biggest accounts. Well, for obvious reason, it's like in their in their balance sheet, those are key accounts. You know, they're tens of millions of dollars or what have you. Whereas, you know, we hired Christine in. It was 2016 or 2017. You know, literally, it was day one where she was like, "We we can do we can do it we can do it better," and you know, and she had she her industry experience went back to the 80s, but she's kind of more of a like, she's from Berkeley, but don't get the wrong idea. She um, is just has more of like a, I'm gonna get on the phone and the first minute that somebody wastes my time, I'll come call somebody else, and then I will drum up all of this business. And that's really her attitude, and she won me over to this. Because I was, you know, at first I spent two years being like, well, six of one, half dozen of the other, you know. We could we could win, we could lose, it's, it's whatever. And then it was Ellie that came in and said, this is really taking up the bulk of your time and capacity, and this is like, this is what is stressing you out. She was right. I didn't think we could do a better job. I thought if we really busted ourselves, we could do as good of a job. And it was actually at this conference, um, five, six, seven years ago, neighborhood of, I, um, I sat next to um, people from New Harbinger and they pretty much had the exact same story. They said, you know, we had problems with Barnes and Noble, we had problems with these accounts, and then we, over our own distribution and no more problems, no more returns, you know. And we're like, huh, keep talking. I wasn't thinking bigger, I was just thinking, for me, what it always comes back to is what would change if we did that that would be also to our benefit? So what we can do is we can put in our own insertions in the orders, we can send out samples with the orders, you know, we make a comic that tells our company history, you know, we can do all those things because we control the warehouse. We, we printed custom boxes this month that have our employees' cats on them with quotes about, you know, that what the cats are saying about how excited they are about the books. And, you know, it's really, like, that's the kind of thing that we're in it for, and that's the kind of thing that the people that order from us are in it for. So you can really, again, it's like the three-legged stool where like you can connect the value chain so much further back when when you start to dismantle the apparatus and rebuild it to suit you rather than the like corporations that control and do influence. You deserve a huge round of applause. So. Ellie does have copies of my publishing book in her book bag for sale. <laughs> <laughs>